Judges chapter number 6. Judges chapter 6. I tell you, y'all going to have to be careful about enjoying church this much. You might come back. Amen. You might. Next thing you know, you'll be one of them fanatics. Amen. You'll be back on Sunday night, Wednesday night, and at revival meetings and everything else. You better be careful. Amen. You ain't supposed to be enjoying church this much, but I'm sure enjoying being with you today. I'm glad for the Lord. He's precious, man. He's worth it. I'll tell you this. If you're <laughs> if you're coming to church for me, you're going to find out very soon I'm not worth it. And if you're coming to church for somebody else, you're going to find out very soon they're not worth it. Uh, but if you'll come to church for him, you'll find out he's always worth it. Amen. And if we can just come and get our mind fixed upon him this morning, I want to encourage you by saying, hey, listen, he's faithful and he'll see you through what you're going through. There's people in this room that I know is going through things. Then there's people in this room probably going through things I don't know anything about. And there's people in this room that are going, getting ready to go through things that they don't know anything about. But I'll tell you, whatever the circumstance, he is sufficient. And he's enough. And he's faithful. And if you'll just lean on him and lean into him, you'll find that he's up to whatever you're going through. And he's sufficient for the need. And he's a precious God. I have no, I, I'm like Brother Taylor and his testimony blessed my heart, man. I just enjoyed it. And I'm like him. I got no complaints. I got no complaints. Say, preacher, you ain't got nothing you could complain about. Oh, yeah, a list reach here from the end of the parking lot. But I've got no complaints. You say, well, preacher, how could you have things you could complain about but have no complaints? Well, Because Paul said this, the things that we experience, the sufferings this life, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And, you know, listen, I complain sometimes. You probably complain sometimes. But here's what we're doing when we're complaining. We're comparing. We're saying what I'm going through here is not worth what what he's going to do for me there. And we're saying it's not worth it in this life. It's not worthy in this life. And Paul said this. Now, Paul's somebody, he hadn't been through much. He had just, I don't know, been killed four or five times. That's all. He had just been, you know, stoned and shipwrecked and left for dead and thrown to the wild beasts at Ephesus and, and a day and a night in the deep and had the people closest to him turn their backs on him, had to stand before Nero and give an answer and nobody stood and testified on his behalf. And he was somebody that had tasted and experienced suffering and sorrow. Now, that's who I'm talking about. Brother Paul, he said these things, they're not worthy to be compared. He said, I'd rather talk about him. I'd rather talk about him than complain about what I'm going through. And man, I'm just, I, I got no complaints this morning. You know, sometimes you'll have in, in business, work, place of work, sometimes in a, in a restaurant or someplace like that, they'll have a complaint department where you can go file complaints. Amen. And I'm not going to say I've never complained uh, to God, and I'm not going to say I've never complained about God, but I'm going to say this, uh, there's no reason to, and I'm going to say that the complaint department is empty this morning. He's good. Amen. He's good. I found him to be good. He's altogether lovely. Amen. He's he's the lily of my valley. You say, preacher, am I, am I going to go through valleys in life? Sure enough, you will. Uh, but there's a lily in the valley. You say, preacher, am I going to go through the darkness of night? Sure you are, but there's a song in the night. You say, preacher, am I going to go through storms in my life? I, I venture you probably are, but there's peace and a presence in the storm. Now, I'm just telling you, man, he's, he's worthy. He's worth it. He's everything. He's altogether lovely. Hey, he's, he's my buckler. He's my shield. He's my high tower. He's my refuge in the time of trouble. He's my help in the day of trouble. He's the lifter up of my head. Hey, he's, he's worthy this morning. And I got no complaints about him. Hey, he's the lily of the valley. He's the rose of Sharon. He is absolutely altogether lovely. And I got no complaints about him this morning. 
Now, if we want to talk about Baptist people, i got a few complaints, amen, but i got no complaints about him. Man, he's wonderful. He's precious this morning. I love him so much. I don't know why he loves me, but I, but he's a precious God. Judges chapter number 10 this morning, and I want to preach to you for a few moments about an episode in the history of the children of Israel. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that the book of Judges is not the most glowing record of Israel's history. Uh, one of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't hide the warts of men. It doesn't hide the weakness of men. It doesn't hide how men behave. And it's honest and transparent about the things that men do and their flaws and their failures. And the book of Judges is really a chronicle of the failures of Israel as a society. It's a, it shows the, the failure of their society, shows the, the failure of, of their separation, shows the, the failure of, of their ceremony or their religion. It shows that, that manly left unto himself will always and invariably lead towards decline. And if we don't put the Lord at the heart and center of our life, doesn't matter what we call ourselves, doesn't matter what uh, creed we affirm to or doctrine that we embrace, if we won't have the Lord at the center of our life, our life will be a mess. And the book of Judges details this 13 times in the book of Judges. You'll find that Israel rebels against God. And so 13 times God chastens Israel. And uh, God would then send them, if they'd cry out to him, God would send them a judge. And this was a man who very often was a, a, a man that God had appointed, almost like a, a spiritual patriot in the nation to lead the people back to God and to deliver the people from their oppressors. And God's very gracious. He shouldn't, have had, he shouldn't have had to do it the first time, but time and time again he did it. Just like he shouldn't have to do it the first time for you or me, but time and time again he's done it. But here in our text this morning, I want us to notice something about Israel's interaction with the Lord and about a problem that they were experiencing and about God's answer to it. Judges chapter 10, and I want to begin reading in verse 6. Judges chapter 10, verse number 6. The Bible says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam and Ashtaroth, those are false gods, and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Zidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. These are heathen nations that surround them. They started serving their gods. And they forsook the Lord and served not Him. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side, Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin. These are tribes of Israel. Didn't just stay on that side of the river. They crossed over and began to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was sore distressed. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God, and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon, and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites did oppress you, and ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me, and serve other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. The children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. They put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of 
Israel. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Lord, I've already enjoyed being in your house. Lord, I've enjoyed the songs. I've enjoyed the testimonies. Lord, I've enjoyed the choir. But God, it's been your presence that's made it sweet this morning. And I just want to thank you that you, Lord, would love us enough and think enough of us to drive down Wall Ridge Road and to meet with these people. Lord, I pray that this morning you would have perfect liberty in this service. Lord, I don't know what every heart's need is. It could be. wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size for somebody to be lost here and to not know Christ. They may have religion. They may even know the right answers, but to not have a real relationship with you. And I pray, if that's true, that you would both reveal that to them and, Lord, pursue them about it this morning. Give them no rest. Give them no peace till this matter of their salvation is dealt with by grace through faith. Lord, I pray that if there's any that are discouraged, Lord, that you'd be the lifter up of their head. I pray if there's any that are haughty, any that, Lord, in pride would would exalt themselves against you, I pray that in loving kindness you'd humble them. Lord, I pray if there's any that are drifting or have drifted, Lord, that in your grace and mercy you'd draw them back close unto yourself. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Bless our time together. We're trusting you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As we said a moment ago, the book of Judges chronicles a series of of rebellion of the children of Israel, a series of seasons in which the children of Israel would rebel against the Lord. And when you begin to open this passage of Scripture up, you'll find that there are some things that sort of frame the context of this Scripture. And in many ways, they are familiar to us if we've read through the book of Judges. For instance, in verse number 6, we read about the rebellion of the people. The Bible says the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Did you know there's the witness to their sin in that verse? The Bible says they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. You know, when you or I sin, we don't hide it from God. We can hide it from a lot of people. We can conceal it from a lot of people. It's amazing we live in a society today where there's a cottage industry in helping people try to get away with sin, trying to conceal sin, trying to hide sin. Sometimes they use technology to try to do that. Sometimes they use society to try to do that. Sometimes they use the corruption of justice to try to do that. And man seems to be obsessed with the notion of trying to hide their sin. You know, that's probably because man at his very heart knows that the one with whom we have to do, we cannot hide our sin from. If you're here today and you say, preacher, i got sin in my life, but nobody knows about it, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Listen, ma'am. Listen, sir. You're wrong this morning. Uh, Your friends may not know about it. Your spouse may not know about it. Your kids may not know about it. Your church family may not know about it. There is one. He is the most important one. He knows about your sin. He knows what you've done. When we sin, God sees it. God is aware of it. We see the witness to their sin. But then we see the wickedness of their sin. The Bible says this is what they did. This is what their evil looked like. It says they served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. So we don't just see the witness to their sin, but we see the wickedness of their sin. Uh, now, uh, in this passage, I, you know, whether you believe or accept or agree or not that there are varying degrees of sin. When I read my Bible, it seems to indicate pretty clearly to me that there are. God is aware there are weightier matters of the law. There are certain things that are, that are a graver sin than others. I think none of us can dispute, none of us can debate that the sin they are committing in this passage is very, very wicked. They are engaging. Notice the manner of their sin. It is idolatry. The Bible says they begin to follow these false gods and begin to worship them. Now, I'll tell you what's going through your mind this morning. You're thinking, well, preacher, it's a good thing there ain't no more idolatry anymore. 
I'm sorry to inform you today, but idolatry is as strong as it's ever been. Now, it's true, it may not manifest in the sense of people worshipping images or or statues or idols, although uh, we could talk to uh, the Catholic individuals, and they certainly are engaging in that form of idolatry. Uh, They're praying to their crucifixes, they're holding their rosaries, they're trusting in these uh, outward vestiges and symbols of things. And, And certainly there are even other religions that dabble in and engage in what we would consider to be classical or traditional idolatry, the worship of an idol. But I'd remind you that idolatry is not just confined to a religious form of worship. Idolatry has to do with worshiping anything other than God. In fact, I'd say it this way. There's a lot of people who have a problem with priorities in their life. They allow other things to draw them away from the Lord, to become more important than the Lord in your life. I wonder if you are brave enough to ask yourself this question, is there anything in my life that is more important than the Lord Jesus Christ? If there is, you're an idolater. If that's true in my life, it would make me an idolater. Uh, We have allowed something to wrest our devotion away from Christ. You know, all idolatry is sin. Anything that we allow in our life to take the place of Jesus Christ, that becomes sin unto us. The act or the place that we have put it to or the act of putting it in that place has made it idolatry. It can be something that in and of itself is harmless, but if we allow it to take the place of Christ, we've made an idol out of it in our life. You say, well, preacher, I guess you're right, there is still idolatry. But I would make a, an inverse statement here as well. All idolatry is sin. Let me say number two, all sin is idolatry. Every time you sin, you put something above Jesus Christ. Listen, when you yield to sin, when you yield to temptation, if, if you steal something, you've made that more important to you than Jesus Christ. Uh, if you engage in, in lewd or lurid behavior, if you look at things that you shouldn't look at, lust after things, you've placed that above your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you allow bitterness or anger or, 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 or uh, you know, a sort of hurt in your life to cause you to be a bitter and angry person and to have hatred in your heart towards somebody else, you've put that wound and that hurt above Jesus Christ. See, here's the truth. The reason we sin is we let something become more important to us than Jesus Christ. So when I read about this passage of Scripture, I'm not just reading about the behavior of someone years and years ago committing a sin that is irrelevant to this time. I'm reading about people that are doing what men have always done, what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they chose the fruit above uh, above God. Idolatry is still alive and well, my friend. I see the manner of their sin. It's idolatry. But then I see the magnitude of their sin. And we'll make much of this uh, this morning. We'll notice it very strongly. The Bible says they didn't just serve one false god, but seven different false gods they began to worship. They served Balaam. That's a false god. That was one of the false gods that was most present in Israel's history and in their life. They began to worship him in the wilderness at Baal Peor and, and began to follow Baal and worship Baal. But not just him. Ashtaroth, another false god. Then it doesn't even name these. There's too many of them undoubtedly to name. But it just begins to give categories. It says the gods of Syria, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. I see that they didn't just sin in a small way. Man, they sinned in a big way. And I will say that sin that starts off small oftentimes will grow big in our lives. You know, that's what happened to them. They started with Baal at Baal Peor, but their idolatry didn't end there. It grew to this great magnitude that we see in front of us. So I see the witness to their sin and I see the wickedness of their sin, but then I see the waywardness of their sin. The Bible says this, they forsook the Lord and served not him. So they had the dual sin, right? They did not just make unto them broken cisterns, but they forsook the living water. They didn't just start following false gods, they quit following the true God. 
Can I tell you something? This is a sobering truth this morning. But if you let sin have its way in your life, it won't be long. You'll quit following Him. You'll quit, you'll quit worshiping Him. Uh, you'll quit loving Him the way that you ought to. And you'll quit serving Him. Uh, the fact is, hey, these are mutually exclusive things. And I'm not here to suggest that a person can't love the Lord and still struggle with sin. But I am saying this morning that the more that you let sin in your life, the less you're going to love Him. The Bible says there'll come a time in society. Uh, and and uh, man, I believe we're, if we're not there, we're knocking on the door of it, friend. Uh, when the love of many would wax cold because iniquity would abound. Iniquity would abound. So sin, it can, it can stall and it can sour your love of Him. And the Bible says they started following these false gods. Once long they forsook the true God. Verse 6 tells us about the rebellion of the people. Verse 7 tells us about the wrath of the Lord. It says this, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. In this passage, I noticed that He was moved with anger. Isn't that very descriptive language? He was hot against Israel. He was angry against Israel. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, we still use sort of similar language today. We talk about somebody being hot under the collar, or sometimes somebody loses their temple. They'll say, well, I got a little bit heated. Well, here in this passage, the Lord, He's more than a little bit heated. He's angry, man. He's great. We often think of God as a loving God, and He is a loving God. If you don't believe that, man, look at Calvary. I challenge you, look at Calvary and tell me God's not a loving God. But you know, there's some things that if you love will make you hate other things. I remember hearing a preacher say one time, hey, listen, the shepherd, he hates wolves because he loves his sheep. The farmer hates weeds because he loves the crop. Amen. And the Lord hates sin because he loves sinners. He hates sin because he loves people. And he was angry because of how this would destroy them. And listen, your sin, it angers God. It grieves God. It affects God. You think what you do doesn't affect anyone? I'm sorry. It doesn't. It not only affects those around you, it affects God seated in heaven Himself. You say, well, preacher, that's a petty God. No, that's a pitying God. It's a God that loves you, that cares about your life. If He was the God that you think He should be, He wouldn't even know your name. But He knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about your life. I see He was moved with anger, but then I see He was moved to action. The Bible says he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon. Because of their sin, because of their rebellion, God chastened them as a people. You know, God still chastens his people today. In fact, the Bible says if you're a child of God, he will chasten you. It says every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, scourgeth every one that is his. I watch kids all the time get away with stuff that my kids, I wouldn't let them get away with. You say, preacher, why do you do that? Because they ain't my kids. I don't want to go to jail. Somebody say amen. But if it's my son, I'm going to do something about it. Why? Because he's mine. He's my responsibility. I love him. I'm accountable to the Lord for him. And I'm going to discipline him and I'm going to lead him and I'm going to instruct him. Not because I hate him, but because I love him. The Lord's the same way. He chastens us because He loveth. He, every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. He loves all of His kids. Amen? Uh, listen, not everybody's His child. Everybody's His creation, but not everybody's His child. But if you're a child of God, if you've been saved and you do wrong, He will chasten you because He loves you and wants the best for your life. So He sold them into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the children of Ammon. And that's just another way of saying that He allowed these, these nations to oppress them, to enslave them. So when I read this passage, I read about the rebellion of the people. I read about the wrath of the Lord, but then I see the results of their sin. This is just an introduction. Don't get excited. Y'all thought, man, preacher's blazing it up this morning. We're going to be out. We're going to beat the Methodists to Shoney's. Nope. Sorry. It's just introduction. 
And so in verses 8 and 9, I see the results of their sin. And you know, sin always has consequence. Much as you wish they didn't, they do. As much as everybody in your life tells you they won't, they will. And you'll have people that will traffic in that in your life. That'll tell you that you can get away with sin, you can live any way you want, it won't affect you. They're lying to you. I don't know why they're lying to you. Maybe they just like the friendship they get from you. Maybe they like the approval that they get from you. Maybe they like feeling like they're uh, approving you and, and affirming you and being a good friend to you. But listen, I love you enough this morning to tell you that sin always has consequences. And your sin will have consequences. I see the results of their sin. I see, number one, how it started. Verse 8. The Bible says, That year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Eighteen years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And that interesting language, the way that God says that, it's kind of unique in Scripture. It says, That year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. Colon. Then it says, Eighteen years all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. See, I see how these results, I see how it started. It started with the chastening hand of God on their life. But God, He makes a clear distinction between how that thing began and how it continued. Why would God do that? I'll tell you what I believe about it. I believe God's doing that to remind us that because they had sinned, chastening would come. But it was not, how do I say this correctly? It was not the act of their sin that caused chastening to continue. It was the persistence of their sin that caused chastening to continue. It's almost like God saying, it started that year and it could have ended that year. If they just turned back to me, it could have ended right then, right there. Let me say, hey, listen, you'll be helped in life if you'll learn how to learn quick lessons from God. Wisdom would say, learn quick lessons from God. If He takes you to the woodshed, learn quick lessons from God. Hey, listen, don't make Him drag you. Learn quick lessons from God. And they could have, but their stubbornness they refused to, and it went on far longer than it had to go. And I will say that many of the the sufferings and hurts I've experienced in my life had to do with me gripping tighter to something God was trying to deliver me from. And you say, well, preacher, what happened? Well, he had to pull harder because I was holding harder. And it went longer than it should have had to go. I see how it started. And then verse 9, I see how it spread. The Bible says this, Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. In other words, it didn't just start where it started, or it didn't just stop where it started. It spread further. It spread further. You know, I'm sure they would have thought to themselves, what we do won't affect our neighbors. What we do won't affect our brethren. But that's not the reality of how sin works. Sin always reaches further than you want it to reach. It always goes further than you want it to go. You think the consequences of your sin will only affect you, but they won't. It'll affect your spouse and your marriage. It'll affect your loved ones, your children, your church family, your neighbors, your society. Hey, listen, here's one of the things. Oh, my. This ain't going to be a popular thing I'm about to say. But here's part, here, here is the facade of modern politics. That one man can fix our society, and if we just find the right one, he'll do it. But you know that's not the truth of it. We didn't get in this mess because we found a bad president and he led us here. We got in this mess because we as a people forsook the God of the Bible. We turned from him. And you say, well, preacher, what's going to fix it? We get, we get the right guy in, he's going to fix it. No, I'm sorry to report to you. It's going to be when God's people turn back to the Lord, begin to seek God, and true righteousness lives in this nation again. That's what it's going to take. So it didn't stop there. It spread. And the consequences of your sin, they will spread far beyond you. And then I see how they suffered. The Bible ends with this little short sad phrase here in verse 9. It says, so that Israel was sore distressed. They were miserable, man. And I will tell you that when sin is done with you, you'll be miserable. 
And I will tell you that being under the chastening of the Lord, hey, the Bible says this, that chase, no, no chastening for the present time uh, is, is pleasant. It, none of it is. But afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. In other words, nobody enjoys the chastening of the Lord. I don't enjoy the chastening of the Lord. But if I want that chastening to change, I've got to yield to the Lord and let Him have the governance of my life. It's miserable to be under the chastening of the Lord. It's not pleasant to be under the chastening of the Lord. And likewise, if you're here lost today, I promise you, uh, even though the Lord is not chastening you because you're not His, when sin is done with you, it will leave you miserable and unhappy. Man, I see, I see how it started and how it spread, and I see how they suffered. But then I'm interested in what happens in the next few verses. The Bible says in verse 10, The children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. I will tell you that at first appearance, verse 10 looks pretty good. If if this was a sermon and we were ranking it, we'd give it like a B minus, you know. It's pretty good. I mean, if you were praying with somebody that was struggling with sin and they got down to the altar and they prayed this prayer, you'd feel pretty good about it. You'd get up and say, Man, I think they did serious business with God. But then I want you to notice how the text continues. They said, we, we've forsaken our God and also serve Balaam. And you'd think the Lord would say to him, wonderful, welcome back into my arms. Glorious day, I'll deliver you mightily. But the Lord does not answer that way. Instead, the Lord begins to ask him some questions. Verse 11, the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Mayanites did oppress you, and ye cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Now, I will be honest enough with you today that just a casual reading of that does not encourage the heart. It almost seems like God's kind of rough, you know, kind of mean. I mean, they, they, they confessed, they told God they had sinned, isn't God? I mean, He is, He is altogether lovely, He's merciful, He's, He's gracious, His mercies are new every morning. Shouldn't He have, have embraced them back into His arms and loved them and hugged them and, and delivered them? Shouldn't that have been what God did? Yet when we read this passage, understanding that the judge of all the earth, he, He'll always do right. And the Lord doeth all things well. I think we'd be wise not foolishly charge the Lord. And instead ask ourselves this question, why didn't God do that? Why did God respond the way that he responded? Well, I think we can notice something in a series of verses. And I just want to draw your attention to it. Now, remember what they say. Verse number 10. We served Balaam. Remember what the Holy Ghost had said about what they'd been doing. Verse 6. They didn't just serve Balaam. They served Ashtaroth the gods of Syria, the gods of Zidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the children of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. So I would say this, that their idolatry was manifold. And yet when they confess it to the Lord, they say, we serve Balaam. God replies saying, I delivered you from all these nations. Then listen to the words of the Lord. Verse 13, he says, you have forsaken me and serve other gods, plural. Verse 14, go and cry unto the gods, plural, which you have chosen. We get down into verse 16. I don't want to get ahead in my message, but the Bible says when things really changed was when they put away the strange gods from among them. Say, here's the truth about what's happening. They're crying unto the Lord and they're saying, Lord, we've done wrong, we've sinned. And yet there's still sin that they're not addressing in their life and that they don't want addressed in their life. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. Deliver us, but don't disturb us. Deliver us, 
But don't disturb us. Can I say the philosophy of modern Christianity is, Lord, deliver us. You can go to meetings, you can go to revival services all over, and you'll, people love the idea of being delivered. There's something about the word. I don't know what it is, man. It must be a CIA psyop. I don't know what's going on. That word deliver, people like that word deliver. God, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And yet with that plea and cry, very rarely do you find heartfelt repentance and cleansing and clearing of a person's life. You see, the Lord's reply is not mean, it's not cold, it's not unkind or calloused. But what He's saying is, you cried out to me, but there's still work to be done. You want deliverance, but only in this area of your life. You want me to take away a false god, but I want to take away all the false gods in your life. I want you to notice three things this morning. And then I'll be finished. Look back with me at verse 10. We've spent a little time there. Let's notice it again. The Bible says the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. Now, that's pretty good. That's a good start, isn't it? They cried unto the Lord, saying, we have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. I want you to notice, number one, this morning, their false cry. Now, I, I like the language of verse 10. I'm going to be honest with you. In fact, you could read many other verses in the Word of God that say very, very similar things that are right and correct and proper and wholesome and end very differently than this ends for the children of Israel. In fact, it was normal if a person... I mean, you say, preacher, don't you think people should cry out to the Lord? Yeah, a lot more than they do. I think the way this thing starts is pretty good. And notice that. Notice where they started here. They start the right way. They cried unto the Lord. Well, that's the person you got to cry unto. If something's wrong in your life, you, you listen, you can cry unto your parents, you can cry unto your friends, you can cry unto the bank, you can cry unto the government, but at the end of the day, nobody can change your life except the Lord. You can cry unto the self-help gurus, you can cry unto the, uh, unto the life hack podcasters, but at the end of the day, you want your life to be better, you're going to have to go to the Lord. He's the only one that can change things for you. They cried unto the Lord, man, that's pretty good. And then I even like what they said, this is pretty good, we have sinned against thee. And I will tell you that if you want help from the Lord, the first step is you're going to have to confess any known sin in your life. I don't know where we got into this weird form of Christianity where where we can have the kind of relationship with the Lord that we need to have but have sin in our life. That is foreign and alien to all of Scripture. How could two walk together except they be agreed? Christ will have no concord with Belial. Light will have no concord with darkness. Sin will have no concord with unrighteousness. And I'm here to tell you this morning, hey, don't expect your relationship with God to be what it needs to be if you got sin in your life that you won't deal with. So the first step, man, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm tracking with them. I, I, I put my stamp and seal of approval on the first half of verse 10. It looks good. It passes the criteria. They said, we have sinned against thee. And if you want your life to change, you're going to have to get honest with God about the sin in your life. But then I want you to notice where they strayed. Now, the next phrase seems innocent at first. The Bible says, both because we have forsaken our God and also serve Balaam. But, you know, it's funny, sometimes the most profound truths in Scripture are not contained in what is there, but what isn't there. And it's interesting the way they say this. Now, if you've not studied this matter out in your Bible, you may not be aware of this, but the, oftentimes in the Old Testament, God is known by the name Jehovah, Lord. You'll see it in your, in your King James Bible. It will say in all capital letters, L-O-R-D. And that's a way of denoting that His name Jehovah is being used. And sometimes it'll just be spelled out explicitly in your Bible. It'll talk, talk about the Lord, Jehovah. And, and here, it's very common when God was dealing with Israel, they'd use the name Jehovah when they'd talk to. 
that was sort of the national name of God. In other words, if a person said God, they're just meaning a generic term for a deity. The Old Testament terminology that would be used is the name Elohim. It's just like a generic name for God as the Creator. First time we find it is in the book of Genesis, chapter number 1, when the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, God, He's just God. And often the world, when they talk about God, that's what they mean. And they don't have a problem with the idea of God. But when you start to get specific about who that God is, it becomes a problem. Now, you may wonder why that is. Why do people have this visceral response when you start talking about the Lord in the Bible and you start using the name Jesus Christ? Why are they bothered by it? Well, somewhere within the heathen DNA of humanity, there is still an innate understanding that the term God means one thing, but when you start getting specific about which God you're talking about, you're narrowing the field. Now, for them, they're talking about all these gods. They're talking about Baal. They're talking about Beelzebub. They're talking about Chemosh. They're talking about Moloch. They're talking about all these gods that they've been worshiping. But then when they talk about the God of Israel, they don't use his familiar name. They instead just say God. We have forsaken our God. And you say, well, preacher, is that really all that significant? Is God trying to lawyer them in the way they speak? No, I don't think God is. But understand that the reason we give a particular proper name to something is because it associates a context and a history to it. You see, when you said God, who were they speaking about? But now if they said Jehovah, that meant something. You see, that, that was that was the God that appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob. That was, that was the God that had, as a burning lamp and a smoking furnace, passed in Genesis 15 in between the, the different sides of the sacrifice. And uh, Abraham had righteousness imputed unto him. That God has a history. That was the God that had called them out of uh, Syrian darkness, out of pagan heathen darkness, uh, to come to the knowledge of the true God of the Bible. That was the God that had, through His providence and grace and mercy and faithfulness, led them both into Egypt's bondage and then, with a high hand, back out of Egypt. That was the God that had despoiled and humiliated all of the false gods of Egypt. That was the God that had turned the Nile to blood. That was the God that had turned the sun to darkness. That was the God that had brought down hail and that had brought down scourge and plague and had caused Pharaoh, who was in the Egyptian mind, the God of this world, to loosen his grip and let God's people go. That was the God that had parted the Red Sea and brought them through on dry ground. Hey, that was the God that had given them manna from below and quail from above. That was the God that had brought water forth out of the rock. That was the God that had delivered them from their foes in the land of Canaan. That was the God that had manifested Himself in the glory, in the cloud, and in the pillar of fire. That was the God that had sat down on Sinai with His throne room in a crystal pavement and met with humanity. That was the God that was their, their national God. There was a history there. And here's what they're doing. They're not wanting to use that name because it reminds them of all that God's done for them. Can I say in your life and in my life, oftentimes one of the things that helps us in getting our life right and getting sin out of our life is to be reminded of all He's done for us. They start off good. They're saying we've sinned, but they don't want to really lean into the gravity of that sin. They don't really want to. You see, I mean, how much more disgraceful would it be if they had had to say, we didn't just forsake God generic. We forsook Jehovah. Jehovah is God. He is Elohim. But this was a way they could soften their confession before Him. Can I just give you a piece of friendly advice? I I don't know. It's unsolicited. You'll probably hate me for it. Just go ahead. If you don't like it, cast these pearls right back up here. I'll scoop them up. But can I just give you a little piece of friendly advice? When you confess your sin to God, call it by the ugliest name you know how. 
I, listen, if you've had a problem with your mind, don't say I'm struggling with bad thoughts. Say I'm lusting. If Listen, if, if you stole something, don't say, well, I borrowed it and forgot to give it back. I stole it. If you told somebody something that's untrue, don't say, well, you know, I sort of bent the truth. Bent the truth. <laughs> say I lied. If you've allowed something to come between you and Christ, don't say, well, I'm struggling with my priorities. Say, Lord, I'm an idolater. I'm an idolater. Call your sin by its ugliest name and never forget all that God's done for you. I see where they strayed, but then I, I notice the real problem with this passage. It's not just where they started or where they strayed, but I notice where they stopped. They said this, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. I can almost see God lean from heaven and go, Right? And what else have you done? Can I tell you a real problem in our Christian life very often? We pick a few sins we don't mind to let go of. And then we come to God's, to, to our negotiation table. And then we want to barter with God. We, we, we go to this spiritual swap meet where we say, well, Lord, I'll be willing to let go of this. But that stuff back there behind the table, that ain't even for sale. We say, Lord, there's certain things I'll confess. Lord, there's certain things I'll forsake. But God, can you, can you just, can you deliver me without disturbing these things in my life? You see, God's reply in the very next verse, and we'll say more about it in a moment, is not one of callousness. It's one of thoroughness. He's not saying, I don't love you, and I don't want to help you, and I don't want to deliver you. What He's saying is, I can't do these things for you until you deal with those other false gods. I'm not going to name off false gods this more. I could. I'm not afraid to. I, we could. It ain't. It, nobody will be impressed by it, but I could do it. But here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Do you have any false gods in your life? I could start naming sins, and preachers ought to do that pretty often. I think it's good because somehow God's people forget what sin is. It becomes this abstract thing that don't really live in their realm. But I'm not even going to do that this morning. I'm going to ask you, do you have any sin in your life? I see their false cry. Then I see, number two, their frightful condemnation. I like God's answer in verse 11. I mean, I don't like it. My flesh don't like it, but the new man does. It says, And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines, the Zidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Mayanites did oppress you, and you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. It's interesting. I told you earlier there are seven gods listed in verse number 6 that they began to worship and to follow. They, in verse 10, confess only one God. And they say, all right, Lord, we've done wrong. I'll fess up to the worship of Baal. And God's reply in verses 11 and 12, He says, that's good. I appreciate that. But I didn't just deliver you from Baal. I delivered you from the gods of Egypt. I delivered you from the gods of Zidonians. I delivered you from the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the children of the Amorites and the gods of the children of the Amalekites and the gods of the Mayanites. In other words, he's saying this, don't you realize I did not deliver you so that I could piecemeal go through and with qualification, zero surgical precision in your life, pick off what you want me to. He says, I I saved you from all these other gods too. His condemnation involves three things. Number one, he points to the fact that there were hidden gods. 
It's almost like a child comes up, holds out in his hand before the Lord. Here, Lord, look what I brought you. And God peeks around his shoulder and says, uh, that's good. But what about all that back there? We have a playroom at our house for our kids. I don't know why. That's a first world problem, but we do. I wonder if we're teaching them to, I don't know, man. Well, we got this playroom. It's where all the toys go and all the things that you buy them and give them and everything and stuff we cart home every week. It goes in there and they play in that playroom. Well, as you can imagine, keeping that room clean is a pretty consistent battle. And um, there's different philosophies. We could go in and clean it up um, ourselves and, and not make them do it. I'm, a, I'm a, in favor of just boarding up the room, but we've not done that yet. Instead, trying to teach them to be stewards over their own space and, and, and to do the right thing. We, we try to get them to clean up the room. And so you can imagine how that goes, you know. And, uh, you know, we'll tell them all the time, y'all go in there and clean that playroom up. I want it to be clean. And it's amazing. They'll go in there and they'll start, you can hear them, you know, goofing off, playing and everything, moving stuff around, Legos rattling and everything. Like 20 minutes later, they'll come in and they'll go, Dad, we cleaned this up. And that was real cute the first, maybe second time. But that gets old real quick. And maybe I'm harsh, I don't know. Maybe I'll regret this one day. But they'll come up. This is how that exchange usually goes. Dad, 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 have you cleaned that whole playroom? No. Get back in there. I don't want to hear from you. I don't even want to see your face until it's clean. I learned that from Dr. Spock in them books. (laughs) Dr. Spock taught me that. And... um, because there's a certain point where it's like, if you know there's still a problem, don't come in here and brag to me like you've done some great thing in this small step you've taken. When you know that the job's not finished, it's not done, it's not accomplished. Go back and clean the mess that you know is there instead of strutting around proud as a peacock because one little mess that you did clean up. And they come running to God and they say, Lord, deliver us, deliver us. Here's Baal, here's Baal. And he looks at him and says, is that playroom clean? And they go, no, sir. And he says, then I'm not going to deliver you yet. See, here's the reality in our life. We, we, if we want serious help from God, we've got to get serious about getting serious help. You playing games, you ain't going to get help from God. But if you'll get serious about your need, so serious that you'll throw those other gods away, so serious that you'll put God alone on the throne of your life, so serious that you'll quit making excuses for why you can't serve Him, for why you can't be faithful to Him, for why you can't make Him the King and the the Lord of your life. If you'll get serious, He'll get serious with you. But as long as you're just playing games, I'm sorry. Don't expect help from Him. He says there's hidden Gods. Not only does he note that they were hidden gods, but they were hindering gods. Verse 13. He says, yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I'm going to say it again. You could quote it. The wherefores and the therefores are there for a reason. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. Now that's interesting. What does God mean by that? Now the word of God cannot be broken. It is affirmed and settled forever in heaven and it is immutable. And it is never wrong. And it is never incorrect. And if you go a chapter over, you'll find God delivering them. So what's he saying? When he says, I will deliver you no more, he's not saying I won't help you. He's saying this, I can't help you until you deal with this. Imagine God being willing to help deliver them in their idolatry and help enshrine false gods in their life. Imagine how quickly they would have said, 
Not Jehovah delivered us. They didn't even want to speak His name. But Chemosh delivered us. Moloch delivered us. Ashtaroth delivered us. See, here's the reality. If He had helped them without addressing the totality of their sin, all He would have done is entrench them further in their sin. You know why God won't help you till you get serious about dealing with sin in your life? Is all it would make you do is double down in the sin you're involved in. It would affirm in your life the idea that you can be a good Christian and still do those things. God loves you enough that He says these things till they're dealt with will hinder me helping you in your life. They were hindering gods. But then notice number three, they were helpless gods. Verse 14, he says this, Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. Now, is God being a smart aleck here? I don't think so. Is he being unkind? No, I don't think so. He's trying to arrest their attention to the reality there is only one source of help in their life. And that they are not helping themselves by hanging on to these gods, but they are hindering God, the true God, from helping them. And he reminds them at the end of the day, Those things you're worshiping, they ain't going to get the job done. Can I tell you, those sins, sooner or later, you'll get tired of them. About the time you can't get rid of them, that's when you'll get tired of them. The devil will make sure of that. About the time that it has burnt your life to the ground, that's about the time that that you'll get tired of them. And sit there in the ash pile of your life with the consequences of your choices, and weep that though God is gracious and though God is merciful, that there are some consequences that grace does not rewind, that there are some products of our choices that grace does not overcover, but that there are results for the things that we do and the things that we choose that we carry until we get to glory. He's trying to tell them, hey, listen, those gods ain't going to help you. They're not going to deliver you. I see their frightful condemnation. But then, I'm glad we don't have to end on a bad note. I mean, I've had fun, but I don't know how you feel about it. And so I want you to notice number three, their full confession in verses 15, 16. Things get better in verse 15, 16. What God said to them, they let change them. Let me just pause and say to you this morning, the only way things will change in your life is if you let what God says to you change you. You can sit and participate in in Bible preaching as a pure academic exercise and it not change anything about your life. You can agree with everything I've said this morning in principle, but if you don't let it change your life, it won't change your life. But thank the Lord, they let it change their life. And and they made another confession. They went back and did it the right way in verses 15, 16. Notice three things about their confession that I think were correct and were improved. Verse 15, the Bible says this, The children of Israel said unto the Lord, We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. Let me say, number one, they were honest in this confession. Now you say, well, preacher, they didn't say anything different in the first phrase of this verse than they said in verse number 10. In verse number 10, they say, we have sinned. Verse number 15, they say, we have sinned. What's the difference? The difference is the matter of the heart. You see, in verse 15, or in verse 10, excuse me, when they said, we have sinned, it was a cloak to conceal their further sins. But when they say, we have sinned, in verse 15, it is a magnifying glass to emphasize and expose all their sins. You can come to the Lord and make a move towards God. And I'm very careful about that language. That's become very popular nowadays. We had a move towards God or somebody made a move towards God. And I know there's a sense in which that can be correct and appropriate. But I wonder sometimes if we're just too scared to really put a name to what we're talking about. If you're lost here today, you don't need to move towards God. You need to get saved. 
You need to ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you of your sins and to, and to be born again, to be made a child of God. That's what you need. You can pray and ask God to fix your finances, but that ain't what's going to help you. You can pray and ask God to fix your marriage, but that ain't what's going to help you. You can pray and ask God to fix your kids, but that ain't going to be what helps you. If you're lost here today, you don't need to move towards God. You need to be born again, saved by the grace of God. And if you're here today rebellious against God, you don't need to move towards God. You need to confess that rebellion to God and ask forgiveness of it and repent of it and ask God to make your life what it needs to be. We could enumerate a hundred different things, but I think the matter is what is our purpose in coming to God? Is there a purpose in coming to God? One of the first things when I deal with people in the altar that I always ask them is, why did you come down here? If they look at me and say, I don't know, I say, go back to your seat. Why did you come down here? If you don't know why you came down here, what's wrong in your life? What needs to be fixed in your life? They were honest. They were, number one, honest about their sin. They said, we have sinned, but here they weren't hiding it. Here they were confessing it. Then notice, number two, they were honest about their situation. Look what they say in in the next phrase. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. That's interesting. First time they come to God, they say, God, we will trade you Balaam for deliverance. Transfer portal. That's why I'm against it. Amen. Free agent. We will trade you Balaam for deliverance. Now they come to God and they say, heaven help, Lord, we ain't on no bargaining ground. We're so messed up. (laughs) We're so messed up. We ain't got nothing to offer you. We ain't got nothing to promise you. Our promises wouldn't matter. We're, We're false worshipers. We're idolaters. Our promises wouldn't matter. And they say, now, Lord, here's the reality. We don't have nothing to offer you, but we sure need from you. And we need you to do what only you can do in our lives. And God, take anything you want from us. Can I tell you, when you start really getting help, would you listen to me this morning? Would you listen to me? When you really get help is when you quit bargaining with God and start saying, Lord, whatever you want, that's what you'll have. Here's my life, all of it. Take it, let it be consecrated, Lord, unto thee. Lord, I'm not here to bargain, I'm here to beg. I need your help, Lord. And they come and they say, do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good. Deliver us only, we pray thee this day. They're saying, Lord, anything you want to take from us, take from us. But God, we need you. When a man gets in that situation, he starts to get help. I notice they were honest, number two. I notice they were humbled. Verse 16, the Bible says they put away the strange gods from among them and serve the Lord. You know what happened? God broke them. Some of the sweetest days in my life have been days God's broke me. (laughs) Because I had built this thing all wrong and he had to tear it all down before he could set it all right. And sometimes in my life, some of the sweetest times have been when God has just broke me. And he broke them in this passage. Notice they were humbled. We can see that as shown by their repentance. The Bible says they put away the strange gods from among them. Say, preacher, what are the strange gods? Any god but Jehovah was strange among them. Anything that wasn't Jehovah was strange among them. And you say, preacher, how do I put away the strange gods in my life? Anything that's not of Him. Anything that don't please Him. Anything that doesn't, doesn't agree with Him. Put it away out of your life. I see their repentance. And then I see not only it was shown by their repentance, it was shown by their return. The Bible says they served the Lord. Not they served God. They served the Lord. said, we ain't serving Baal anymore. We're going to serve Jehovah. We ain't going to serve Chemosh anymore. We're going to serve Jehovah. We ain't going to serve Ashtaroth anymore. We ain't going to serve Moloch anymore. We're going to serve Jehovah. He is our God. He's who we ought to be serving. And they got back in the right place. 
you know, when you get serious, you'll come back to the Lord. Man, there's people I'm praying for. I'm praying for them to come back to God. But they, until they get serious, they ain't going to do it. As long as they're playing games, they ain't going to do it. I know that. I'm aware of that. And my heart's desire is to see them come back to God, quit playing games, distracted, running around, chasing after every bit of nonsense in the world, and not following the Lord. I want to see them come back to the Lord. You say, preacher, how will you know when they're serious? When they come back to the Lord. I don't mean when they come back to Wall Ridge. I mean when they come back to the Lord. I don't mean when they come back to my ministry. I mean when they come back to the Lord. God bless them. If they can find a better church than ours, I might join it. Amen? But when they come back to the Lord, that's what I want. I see, man, they were humbled. It was shown by their return. And then finally, and I'm done, I want you to notice they were helped. The Bible says this, his soul, God's soul, Lord's soul, it was grieved for the misery of Israel. Now, I use that as, as an abbreviated comment on what begins to happen in the next few chapters. And you can read in your own time. The next chapter begins to talk about a man named Jephthah. Very interesting, unusual story in his life. But God uses another judge, raises up another judge to deliver Israel from their enemies. You know, turned out God cared after all. His heart, his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. It's never that he didn't care. It's he don't just want to care. He wants to care for you. You just want him to care, but he wants to care for you. You just want him to just feel, but he wants to change you. Here in this passage, here's what we learned. When they got serious, God got serious about their situation. You want God to change your situation, you're going to have to get serious. You're going to have to quit playing games with Him. You're going to have to quit hiding those other gods back behind and thinking God don't know about it. And you're going to have to come to the Lord, cleanse your life, and ask Him to do what only He can do. Let's bow together this morning. I want to pray with you for a moment. Musicians going to come and play. and This is what we normally call the altar call. We call it that, but really you can go to the altar anytime. We're having church. You don't have to wait till this moment. But it's a good time to. If God has spoken to your heart about something in your life, would you meet Him in the altar? Would you ask His forgiveness, His cleansing of that matter? Say, preacher, it's not that I've done a thing. It's that I've not been doing what I'm supposed to. Well, you need forgiveness of that if that's true. He'll cleanse you of it. Say, preacher, I've let some things in my life. I, I I didn't think it'd ever go this way. I didn't expect it to. Well, come down. Ask Him to forgive you and cleanse you. Say, preacher, will he, will he do that? Well, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I'll tell you this, you notice that conditional word, if? That means this, if we ain't going to confess it, he can't cleanse it. It's not he won't cleanse it, he can't cleanse it and be faithful and just unless we'll confess it to him. If that's you this morning, would you meet him in this altar? Father, bless this invitation. Pray it would magnify the name of the Lord Jesus in Christ's name.